after we read. We're going to read first. Uh, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who carry on, or all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, this morning with thankful hearts. We are thankful and grateful to you, Lord, for the many things that you are doing behind the scenes. Lord, you are gracious and good. And if we pause and consider the thousands upon thousands of things that we do not deserve, that we take for granted, I believe we would be overwhelmed with thankfulness at your grace. Father, we want to thank you for the way that you meet our needs, Father. Perhaps not perfectly in the way in which we desire, but perfectly according to your riches in glory. You are not short on cash, but you, Lord, are wise and therefore not so foolish as to give us everything that we ask for, because that would cause our hearts to be full of pride, and we might move far from you. Instead, we thank you that you keep us on are in dependence, that we might remain in fellowship with you, the one whom we need and whom we live and move and have our being. Father, we thank you that beyond supplying our daily bread, you have forgiven our sins, not holding our trespasses against us, cleansing of us, us of guilt. You free us to serve you and to follow you. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you call us into mission, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us in a sense of purpose and urgency as we interact with people each and every day. May we be wise towards them sharing the gospel. Father, I, I pray for our church's mission endeavors this summer as we uh, seek to, to broaden our horizons, returning to uh, North Carolina to, to work uh, where we worked previously in service, but then to, to go abroad 
another team and to, and to serve and, and to conduct a VBS and to be involved in construction projects and, and helping and sharing the gospel. We pray for your blessing as we select a team and as we raise funds and as that team learns to work together. And as we go, Father, we pray, pray that you would go before us and that we would be faithful to listen to your voice as we seek to share with those who need the message of the gospel. Father, we thank you for the text that's before us and for the wonder of grace that it holds. And I pray that as we hear it, we would be thrilled with the amazing work that you do on behalf of men and women. And that we would be filled with a sense of purpose to go and to share. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We live in a day that some would characterize as one of great persecution. I think that... Um, Reading a few history books will give some perspective. Uh, but it is uh, not unfair, I think, to say that in today, or in, in, our, in our present time, that we live in a time of rising opposition to Christianity, to, to the teachings of Jesus, to, to the idea of, of an exclusive faith. And when I say exclusive faith, I mean that Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Uh, that is a, a perspective which is greeted by many as intensely intolerant, excluding of all other worldviews. And that's absolutely true. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, he is being incredibly intolerant in the sense that he is saying there is one way. The difficulty and opposition that can arise in the face of teaching and preaching the truth can cause many to throw up their hands. It can cause many to panic, many to become nervous. But I believe that this text holds a tremendous reassurance to us. The truth is that God is in control. There is nothing that happens apart from his knowledge and nothing that happens apart from his will. God knows all things. He uses all things for his glory. The evil that's committed in the world is evil, but God uses it for good. He is able to attain good out of the darkness that men and women bring into the world. We ought not to throw up our hands in despair if the world doesn't like Jesus' teaching. But I think there's more than that. Taking this divine perspective and believing in the transformative power of the gospel, I believe that we can have a greater hope for our place in the world. And as we look through Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, we're going to see how God transforms an enemy of Christianity into an ally and how the obedience and faithfulness of a believer played a part in that. My professor, uh, Dr. William Larkin, who's devoted his life to studying the writings of Luke in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, says this in his commentary. The most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Did you hear that? The most important event in human history aside from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. Which means we are on the verge in this text of the most significant event in history, second to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Consider that as we move through this passage. That is... A man's opinion, that is not the verdict of the scriptures, but I think if you consider the contribution of, of Paul to the New Testament and to the mission of Christianity, and then you think about how the letters of Paul and the, the writings of the New Testament have shaped the world, you might, like myself, agree. I'm going to break this text up into four parts this morning. The first thing that we see in the first two verses is murderous breathing. 
This is the condition of Paul in the beginning of this passage. We see the breath of Saul, it says, that, that Saul is breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. This is Paul's attitude, threats and murder. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, describe the, the scene. It's been interrupted by, by um, the, the ministry of Philip, to the Samaritans and then to the Ethiopian eunuch. We've, we've kind of stepped away from what's going on in Jerusalem for a moment, but remember where that left off in Acts chapter 8. It says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This is right after the death of Stephen in Acts uh, chapter 7. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. The word used there is, is, is uh, used in only one other scripture, and that's in, in the Psalms, to describe the way that a wild animal might trample a vineyard. Saul is ravaging the church, devastating it, destroying it. He's entering house after house, violating the sacred bonds of their personal property, entering in, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. And now he breathes threats and murder against the disciples. Matthew Henry, a famous commentator and one of my favorites, says this. There is a persecution in threats. When people use words to intimidate others and they make threats, there's a persecution in that, in that threats terrify and break the spirit. So... Not only are people actually being dragged off into prison and hurt, but many are intimidated. Many feel nervous about identifying with Christ. People are shrinking back from the church. They're scared to identify with it. Paul is creating a, a hostile environment. The church is fleeing from his persecution. And he's actually calling for more violence. They have already dispensed with two followers of the way. This is the, what you could call the Jesus-Stephen violence cycle. They identified Jesus as the ringleader of this movement, and they put him to death. And then they identify this teacher, Stephen, who's upsetting people. And in Acts chapter 7, they put him to death. And now they are moving out and persecuting different members of this group. Paul, at this point, obtains what are called letters of introduction. He goes to the high priest and he says, I understand that the, that the church has spread out from Jerusalem and has fled to a number of places. One of those places is Damascus. And he says, give me letters from you, the high priest. You're the, you're the head of our religion. You're the highest authority. Give me letters and, and I'll take them to the synagogues and religious leaders and we'll root these people out and bring them back here for trial and imprisonment. And though it is not explicit in the text, I believe that the ultimate end for some of these people will be death, because that has already happened. Paul breathing out threats and murder. This is his attitude as he wakes up and packs his bags and, and, and puts his letters on his uh, donkey or whatever means of transport he's got as he heads out from Jerusalem to Damascus. That is his attitude, murderous breathing. He is a raging, wild animal intent on destruction. We see then in verse 3 to verse 9, we see the glory of God in Paul's blinded eyes. It says that as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. There is a, a glorious light like this within the writings of Luke in another place when, when the angels of the Lord deliver a message to the, the shepherds and the, the glory of the Lord shines about them and there is a multitude of the heavenly host in heaven proclaiming to fearful shepherds that a Savior would be born and that there would be on earth peace among men with whom God is well pleased. That is not the situation here. 
He sees this light from heaven shine around him, and it says that he falls to the ground and he hears a voice speaking to him. If previous encounters with beings from heaven give any clue, then Saul is quaking and trembling with fear, and so are all those traveling with him. He falls to the ground. I don't know if this is on his back or on his face, but he is filled with fear. And then he hears the voice. The voice repeats his name twice. Saul, Saul. This is a a double calling of the name. This happens over and over again in Scripture. God calls Samuel, Samuel. Samuel says, here I am, and responds to the call of God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is struck with confusion. He is on a mission for God, and he responds in confusion. He says, who are you, Lord? Using the, the, the kind address of Lord, but I believe some more. He knows that this is an angelic being, a being from heaven who is speaking to him. This is, this is not just an encounter with someone who he ought to address properly. He, he says, who are you, Lord, in dressing him as superior and sovereign? What, what do you mean persecuting you? Who, who in the world are you? I'm not, I'm not persecuting you. I'm not persecuting God. I am defending God's honor and God's laws. Those who, who twist the teachings of Scripture must be punished. I don't know who you are. 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul reveals down the road his reflection back on this at a later time. Luke does not include it here, but, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. He sees a vision of the risen and resurrected Jesus. Jesus tells him here, he says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. I think this is probably one of those situations, if you've ever been in, a, in an accident or, or you've heard news that someone that you love has passed away or, or you've witnessed a crime or something, you may have that kind of moment where like 15 or 20 things are happening in your brain, you know what it is? And, and, and kind of all of them are clear, sort of. You know, you're just kind of like flipping through them. You're like, oh, I got to do this and I got to do that. And, you know, you're maybe in the back of your mind, you're like, you're like, did I leave the coffee pot on? You know, you know what I mean? Like all kinds of strange things are going on in your brain. I think a a whole host of things were probably hitting Paul at this moment. Saul, rather. I'm just going to walk through a couple of them. First one is this. Whoever is addressing him identifies as being completely with his church. Jesus here says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul's response is, what do, you, what do you mean? Who are you? How could I possibly be persecuting you? And he says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Saul has never seen Jesus, nor had the ability to touch him. And yet, Jesus identifies with the church. Each person who has been dragged off, each person who has been intimidated, intimidated every lash that has been struck, Stephen, who is murdered, Jesus knows them and loves them. John 17, 16, Jesus begins to teach on this in his upper room prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever because Jesus was going away. He identifies this helper and calls him the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in each believer. The book of Acts calls this the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is in his people, and he knows their needs. He knows their persecutions and their sufferings, and he takes them personally. If you are in trouble, if you are struggling or suffering, your high priest and savior, Jesus, knows it. Now listen to this. Zechariah chapter 2, 8, and 9, about the way that Jesus, the way that God himself identifies 
with his people. Listen to how God describes his affection for Israel, and this transfers to the church, the, the people of God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plunders you. Okay? This is what God says. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Whoever touches you touches the apple of God's eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Okay, God will avenge those whom the nations beat up on, those who are his people who are taken advantage of. They are the apple of his eye. You know what the apple of your eye is? It's the pupil. It's the center part. If somebody were to walk up to you and to just kind of reach out their finger and you're like, all right, I know you, you know, this isn't weird. And then they were just like to reach out and touch your eyeball. You'd be like, hey, right? You smack, and then they go for it again. You're going to smack their hand like, get off me, right? To touch God's people is to touch the apple of his eye. He does not respond kindly to that. And so we see Jesus respond to Saul's persecution personally. He enters into the situation and he deals with it. He may not do the same in each and every situation that we encounter, but Jesus knows and cares. And I believe Saul is figuring out right now that Jesus is taking what he has been doing very, very personally. I think, too, the remembrance of Stephen's preaching and perhaps the apostolic preaching in Jerusalem and all the things that he's heard about the way are beginning to, 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 to fly into his mind right now. All these truths are racing through there. He realizes that Jesus, as has been testified, is present with God in heaven, God his Father, and he is united with believers, and he is here confronting him as Stephen died he cried out, I see the Son of Man coming, standing at the right hand of God. And he cried out that the Father would forgive them and not hold their sins against them. Jesus is simultaneously present in heaven with God, united with believers, and here confronting him, who must this man be? And I think this is the beginning of a third aspect, his undoing. Jesus' presence there is telling Saul, you, Saul, are in error. You don't know who God is, and you don't know what God is doing, or you would be behaving differently. Also, the presence of Jesus there is telling him, you, Saul, are in sin, because you are opposing what the church is by what you are doing which means that in Paul's own language, this is what he is doing up to this point as Saul. He is roving around, destroying things, expressing his ignorance in unbelief. You can find that in 1 Timothy 1.13, ignorance in unbelief. His gain, what he hoped to acquire from this, he was becoming a, a he was acquiring a reputation and fame. People were praising him for, for the wonderful work that he was doing. His gain becomes loss, Philippians 3, 6 through 9. This currency that he's been accumulating is worthless. And his badge of honor, 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 15, his badge of honor becomes a stain of shame. Gamaliel had pointed out when Peter and John were on trial, he had said, let them go and do not beat them because if you hurt them, or if you, if you kill them, rather, they, they allowed them to beat them, you will be, you will be found out, if, if God is working through them, you will be found not just to be opposing these men, but opposing God. And I think at this point, Saul realizes that Gamaliel's fear Perhaps Saul's own worst fear has been confirmed that opposing Jesus and opposing Stephen and opposing the teaching of the disciples who are part of the way, he is opposing God himself who he claims to serve. But I think there might have been another thought there. Matthew Henry helped me see this. I think that Paul may have been thinking, this is amazing grace. This is the love 
of God towards me, perhaps. Because here is, is God, like so many times in, in different places in Scripture previously, here He is arresting me on the road, stopping me in this place, and pointing out my sin. Matthew Henry says this, It is a sign of favor if God prevents us from pursuing and executing a sinful purpose. Rather than allow Saul to continue to fill up his iniquity by leaving Jerusalem where he's persecuting and destroying the church and arrive safely and successfully in Damascus where he is going to attack that church and bring more destruction and wreck more lives and, and crush more people, God stops him on the road to Damascus and says, Why are you doing this? And Saul says, What do, what do you mean? What do you mean, why am I persecuting you? I don't know who you are. And he says, I'm Jesus and you're persecuting me. And Saul is undone and stopped by the grace of God, which puts the brakes on what he's doing. As all these thoughts occur to him, he's probably still laying there on the ground. And Jesus says to him, rise, go into the city, and I'll tell you what you're supposed to do. I think of dad language here, right? You've been very, very misbehaved. Go to your room and stay there until I tell you what you're supposed to do. Get up and go into the city. Paul's obedient. He gets up. The Bible says that his eyes were open and yet he could see nothing. And so he is led by the hand into Damascus. As we face persecution or opposition or just people saying we don't like you you're intolerant realize this that the power of God can reduce the raging wild animal to a harmless child Paul is led by the hand into the city he spends the next couple days three blind and fasting I believe in torment of soul perhaps saying who who am I what have, what have I been doing? What's happening? What, what have I done? What am I guilty of? I, I thought that I was serving God, saving Israel from this plague, and in fact, I have been resisting God. That makes me the enemy of God. I wonder if he experiences some of what David was tortured with after David numbered Israel and was told this was foolish and that punishment would come upon him. What will happen to me when God finally comes and tells me what to do? Saul's murderous breath interrupted by his blinded eyes, his vision on the road of Damascus. We see in verses 10 through 16 then, a call from the Lord to Ananias, and we see breath perhaps held as God calls another Christian to engage this situation. The Lord calls to a disciple named Ananias. Ananias lives in Damascus. He's a committed believer. He's called a, a disciple, and God appears to him in a vision and calls to him like so many servants. As, as the, the call of the name comes, the response is, is the cry of the heart of the, the godly disciple. Ananias, and Ananias' response is, here I am, Lord. I am ready to do what you want. God called Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. He called Jacob. He called Moses. He called Samuel. He called Isaiah. And each in turn, here I am. What would you have me do? That's a dangerous prayer and a dangerous response, but it's the response of the repentant believer who is submitted to Jesus, not just as Savior who can deliver him from troubles, but as Savior who is sovereign and king. Lots of people like to sing songs like, we worship you, and Jesus is my friend, and things like that. But when we think about Jesus, do we truly think of him as crowned with power and authority over our lives? Jesus says, Keith, do we say, me speaking for the collective us, here I am, and ready to do what he is calling us to. Here I am, Lord. What would you have me do? 
Verse 11, scary, catching Ananias off guard, perhaps making him white as a sheet. Rise, Ananias, go to the street called Straight. Seems easy enough, I know where that is. Don't need a GPS to get there. And go to the house of Judas. Okay, maybe I know that guy. Uh, he doesn't, wait a minute, he's not a Christian. That guy, he's a, I, I think he, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that guy. Uh, go and look for a man of, of Tarsus named Saul. Wait a minute. Behold, this man is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man who just happens to be named Ananias, that's you, come in and lay his hands on him so he may regain his sight. Ananias replies by saying, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. He's done much evil and has done to your servants lots of evil at Jerusalem. And here I hear that he comes with authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is probably really nervous. This is not the will of God. I must have misheard him. Maybe I ate some bad food last night. You know, and there's this, this vision. Really, Lord, this man does evil. He destroyed the church in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, maybe that's why Ananias was there. Maybe that's why others were there. You know, this small Christian community that's growing there that Saul has come to persecute. We know what happened in Jerusalem. And he's got authority from the high priest who Jesus stood before and then lost his life. Sure, he was raised again, but he lost his life. And then Stephen was, was killed with the approval of, of the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. They never prosecuted those people. They got away with it. He's got authority to destroy the church here. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Let me send someone else. God's response to him is, go. <laughs> the Lord said to him in verse 15, go. Obey. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. A couple things about this verse. And one, one included thought is verse 16. God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Go, Ananias. He's, he's seen you, a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him. You must go. You must go. But go to him because he's a chosen instrument of mine. I have chosen him. I have called him to myself. He will be my tool to accomplish my purpose. He will carry my name. I will send him. He will be one of those who I'm sending out to preach and to teach. And he's going to stand before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So don't fear. Don't be afraid. I am going to show him what he's going to suffer. I am going to show him what he's supposed to do. I will point it out to him. You just be faithful and don't be afraid. I've said this a lot about fear, folks, but, but many times we hear do not fear in the scriptures, and what we think is that we're not supposed to fear that, feel that inner stomach feeling of fear or that kind of paranoid brain sense of fear. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you suddenly hear this noise in the middle of the night in your house and you're like, oh, someone's in my house, right? Generally, my wife is the one who feels that. And then she's like, get up, go and see what it is. And I'm like, all right, great. Where is it? Where's the noise? I am armed with my flashlight on my phone. That's my weapon to defend my house. Um, I only ever think of like getting something to defend my house when I'm here talking. You know, I'm putting a, a bat or a hockey stick or something under my bed, um, and I forget by the next time I'm woken up. Fear is not just feeling. Fear is acting. Fear is acting. I am sure that Ananias was very nervous about this, but he obeyed, and that was acting unafraid. Do not fear means do not let fear control you. It doesn't mean don't be slightly nervous about things. You should be afraid of wild dogs, right? Be afraid of that. Yeah, that's good. But when God says don't fear this, even though it may make you nervous, by faith and trust in God's promises, overcome, withstand, and endure, and be obedient, and wait and see what God will do. Don't fear Ananias. I will do it.
God is saying to Ananias that he will remake Saul. He will call him. He will fill him with purpose. Saul will no longer be the poster boy for Pharisees. Instead, having been converted, he will be persecuted. He will no longer be the grand inquisitor. Instead, God says he'll be my instrument. No longer a Pharisee. Now a prophet to kings and to Gentiles and to Israel itself. No longer solely concerned out of zeal for for national Israel, which is blind and lost and cut apart or cut off from Messiah and missing God's purpose for them. Instead, Paul's concern for Israel would be placed with a concern for all nations. No longer would he seek prominence and glory by serving Israel, but instead he would serve the true Israel, the church, by suffering humbly for Christ. There are two forces in the world, I believe, and I think we see this in the church, we see this in politics, we see this in families, two forces. There's a a strong force that actually accomplishes what we want, and then there is a weak force that we think will accomplish what we want, but it will not. There's two forces, and one is love, and the other is force. Love is the strong force, and force is the weak force. Rather than breaking him down and destroying him, God through graciously revealing Paul's sins to him and showing him his affection and his kindness and his grace, Saul will be reborn as Paul. This will mean the death of all that he is. It will mean a fundamental shift in his worldview. But he will be reborn as Paul and will be called to do something that at this moment, uh, as he was leaving Jerusalem, he was diametrically opposed to. He hates the way. He hates Christianity. He hates Jesus and he desires to crush it. But he will love it. Why? Because God forces him to? No. Because God shows him grace and kindness and mercy. And that transforms him. Force only wins external obedience. Love, the strong force, reaches into the heart and transforms the mind. And that is how Paul is changed. Paul will later describe the how of his conversion this way. He will say that he was seized. Philippians 3, 12. Not not that I have already obtained this, he says, about about, uh, reaching a higher call. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He laid claim to me, and I was changed. He was illumined, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he say that? In Genesis 1, the first thing that he created, he said, let there be light, and it was. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Keith Green put it this way, it's like waking up from the longest dream, how real it seemed until your love broke through. There was a light in Paul's heart, and he realized that he was full of darkness. And he was loved with overflowing love. 1 Timothy 1, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis uses these images of conversion in his writing, that God is the great fisherman angler who knows exactly how to hook the fish. He is the cat running down a mouse. He is the hounds chasing down a fox. He is the expert chess player who maneuvers his exasperated opponent into declaring checkmate. Paul, realizing in this situation that he has been undone, that he is outdone, needs someone to come to him and show him grace. And that is Ananias' mission. God tells him, go, obey, take your life in your hands, and go show grace to this man obediently. Come back to this in just a moment. 
Let me just point out one thing. This statement here in, in verse uh, uh, 15 and 16, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, children of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer. This is the, the new programmatic statement for Acts, okay? We're still in a time of transition. Let me just say this real quick. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the the outline that we've seen unfolding. We've seen the gospel spread through these three regions, and now it's going to go to the true ends of the earth. Peter and John and the apostles still have some work to do. We're going to see that in the, in the next couple weeks, that there's still some unlocking of doors. But, but once they're done with that, Luke is going to trace the, the progress of the gospel, not the growth of the church, but the progress of the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so he will shift to the life story of Paul. And Paul's biography, Acts 13 to 28, is right here. Gentiles, kings, children of Israel, and suffering. It's interesting. That's the new dominating theme. Back to the story. Uh, we now see in, in verses 17 through 19, hands laid. Ananias comes to the house and Saul is blind and fasting and praying. I believe reflecting on, on the writings of Luke, this is like the muteness of Zechariah or the, the secluded time of Mary's pregnancy, this time of reflection and wondering and considering and pondering. Mary, it says, remembered these things and she stored them up in her heart. Zechariah had questioned the angel in disbelief and was struck mute, but expressing obedience to God, he said that John the Baptist would be named John and his mouth was open. Saul is undone. He has been struck by God and he is blind and he's fasting and he's praying. And I believe he's, he's saying, I don't, know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, Lord. I don't know what I've I don't know what I've been doing. I don't know why this is so clear to me now. Why, why, did, why did I wander this way? Why did I think this was okay? Why did I think this was right? Why did I not see before? Fasting, praying, coming undone. And Ananias comes in and says these words to him. He says, in verse 17, he says, Brother Saul, I think that is the grace of God right there. This man is a persecutor. He is a murderer. He has been a wild animal to the church. And Ananias comes in and says to him, Brother Saul, the grace of God overflowing. Ananias putting full faith and confidence in God's word that Saul has been transformed. That something has happened to him. And he pronounces a kind of forgiveness over him, and that is acceptance. You are my brother, no matter what you have done. You are part of this persecution against my brother. Some have died, and many are imprisoned, and the church has been scattered, and the work has been interrupted. But you have been changed, and I accept you. Saul, perhaps still wondering, what does this mean? He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has sent me. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. Saul, perhaps beginning to be filled with dread. Is this when, when God zaps me and kills me? You know, does judgment fall on me now? The Lord Jesus has sent me. That you may regain your sight. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul would have known the promise from the book of Jeremiah and other promises from Ezekiel and other places that God would one day make a new covenant. He would remove the heart of stone that refuses to obey and he would place within a heart of flesh and the Spirit and that God's people would love him and love his law and obey him. How is this possible? I believe Saul is wondering. He sent me that you may regain your sight and you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. There is such a wondrous reversal of grace here. 
Paul was coming to this town as Saul to lay violent hands on the church, and Ananias comes in to lay gentle hands. Paul coming, pronouncing names and sentence upon people, judging them, calling them infidel, sinner, heretic, condemned. Ananias calls him brother. Paul comes heaping condemnation. Ananias produces a commission to serve the Lord Jesus. Paul had breathed out threats and violence. Ananias breathes out love and the affection of God. And as he lays his hands on him, it says immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He is delivered from this present terror of spiritual blindness, being separated, not knowing what to do. He is also, I believe this is a symbol of being delivered from his unconverted state. And he moves from this self-centered independence from God, a war against God, to dependence on the Lord. And we are going to see him move into interdependence with the disciples. Jesus told a parable once about a man who owed a small debt and a man who owed a great debt. And then he asked the person who he told the parable to. He said, these two, one who owed a thousand and one who owed 10,000, when both of their debts are forgiven, who would love the forgiver more? And the Pharisee who was asked that question said, I believe the one who was forgiven much would love forgiver more. I believe Saul realizes that he has been delivered from great sins. And it says that in obedience, he, he rose and he was baptized before he ate anything. Before he went to meet with the disciples, he said, I realize that something has, has happened. I have been changed. I have been called. I've been commissioned. I am, I am wrong. I am a sinner. I don't understand all this, but I will follow this Lord Jesus. And he rose and was baptized. The enemy had become the brother. And he was accepted into that family. It says he remained with the disciples many days. What must that first meal have been like? Can you see them? 20, 30, 50 Christians all sitting there nibbling on their bread. You know, watching this guy who's eating like, when does he kill us? You know, is he really converted? Ananias is sitting there like, no, really, it's okay. Look, he's fine. And they're like, no, 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 no. Any minute now, you know, this is not good. And then realizing that God's grace has been seen in that he took this cruel wolf who was ravaging the church and has transformed him into a sheep. And over the next days and weeks, it would be shown that he was not just a sheep, but that he was assuming the character of a shepherd. Let me just close with three applications, three points from this message. One, God shows grace to all, even the most wicked and violent of enemies. You could not think of a person more opposed to what Jesus stood for and his church than Paul. And yet God shows him grace and saves him and delivers him and uses him. And that means no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, no matter who you've associated, no matter how you've acted, you can be free through the gospel. Jesus Christ, his death is the solution to our guilt, and we are freed from it because of his death on our behalf. And that means all guilt, not just specific kinds of guilt, not just, I told seven lies and I prayed to receive my salvation, can I be forgiven? Of course, you know, I robbed 17 banks and shot and killed 15 or 20 people. Can I be forgiven? The answer is yes. All people. Because we are all guilty of offenses against an infinitely holy God, which means that any offense is infinitely offensive. We can all be forgiven. Second, Dr. Larkin points out that we ought not to be deceived by self-satisfaction. And there he means in others. Saul was content with his life spiritually. 
He wasn't in anguish. He wasn't wondering. He wasn't uncertain. He wasn't like, oh, what, what shall I do? He was ready to destroy the church when he woke up on Tuesday morning heading to Damascus. But by end of day Tuesday, everything was different. God's sovereign grace changed him. And so if there's somebody in your life or somebody that you know and you are like, this person will never believe because they're not searching, think twice. And keep praying. And keep praying. And keep sharing. Because God can change anything in an instant. He changed Saul. Third, in his prayer, Ananias teaches us that reluctant gospel messengers must not only love their enemies, but also trust that the gospel has such redemptive power that a praying, converted persecutor is no longer a persecutor. The person who hates Christ the most, who is an atheist, who's got a science background and says it's all junk and none of it's true and I could never possibly believe that. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know where they are. You don't know what God is doing in their heart and you don't know what they're seeking. Your call is to be faithful and preach God's word, to be an instrument. They might be the next instrument who transforms the world. You don't know that. You just need to be faithful. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to look through this passage this morning. Lord, what rich and amazing treasures are here. I believe if we were to spend another five weeks here, we could probably ex not yet have exhausted the riches and the wonders that are in this passage. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning, Lord. I do not know where this text reaches each of them. There are some in a group this big who do not know you and perhaps who are wondering, will Jesus really forgive me? We thank you that we know from this passage that the answer is yes. Not only will you forgive, but you will also use. So we thank you for that. I pray if there's anyone here who has not trusted in Christ, that they would repent of their sins, identifying them and forsaking them and hating them, and that they would run to your forgiving arms and submit to you as Lord, Savior, and King. Father, I pray for those who know you that if any of them are struggling with the lie of the devil, that there is something that they cannot be forgiven of or there's something they need to work off, may they see that for what it is. It is a pile of garbage straight from the devil and that you will forgive. And may they then, may we all be filled with a sense of purpose to share and to pray and to pray and to pray and to share that those who oppose might be transformed by your grace, which is irresistible. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.